Welcome to the Force Matters podcast, powered by Motusi. I'm J.D. Romick. And I'm Jonathan Ang. We're here to have disruptive, inclusive, and informative dialogue at the intersection of technology, research, and clinical practice. Our promise to sort through the BS so you don't have to. Our focus is what matters to your musculoskeletal health. Welcome back, everybody, to the Force Matters podcast. I'm J.D. Romick. I'm John Ang. And we have our Motusi mailbag again. So today our question is, what dosages do you recommend for Therax? 3 by 10 has been the forever prescribed dosage, but that has come under some fire recently. I think by the data nerds and the PT posses that like to burn things to the ground a little bit because it is not evidence-based. Nowhere does it say that three sets of 10 is the best for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think maybe we start as like where, what sort of prescription dosages are evidence-based, right? And I mean, maybe I'm old school, but mine comes from the strength and conditioning background, right? So, yeah. you know, the power, the the endurance, um, the explosiveness, right? And so that's, that's kind of where, um, you know, if you're gonna be building those things out for your patients, what do they need, yeah. right? Again, it's gray area, like we've talked about before, right? But it's, um, uh, there's two there's two things I always use with patients. A lot of them actually kind of stem from like the tendon research. Mm-hmm. And um, I will often time, because how many of our patients tend to need that, right? Where it's actually not necessarily strengthening, right? It's that right. time under tension from a, from a loading perspective. And so uh, a lot of it will be, you know, I'll try to build them up to get to like five times 45 second holds, right? Um, and then um, there's a really fun thing that I, people or my patients have resonated with for a long time and there's no science behind it. So I'm gonna fully say that this is, this is not science-based, but Uh-oh. I find that it's very helpful for them because a lot of times we always get that question that says, well, how do I know if I should do more or if I should, if I should stop? And it kind of comes from, again, the tendon side of things, right? <clears throat> Where um, I started saying, oh, just follow the rule of 10, right? And I'll fully proclaim to the patient. I'll be like, listen, no science behind this. This is just what I've figured out over clinical years of experience. And I say, the rule of 10, do 10, check in. Does it feel the same, better, or worse? Same or better, green light, do 10 more, right? Feels worse, table it, try it again tomorrow. Right? And I, that gives them that ability, and we'll do it together in the clinic, right? And whether what it feels like, and it gives them that, that sort of ability to make a decision on their own. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't limit them, right? Because I'll, I'll also say like, you can do as many of these as you want. It's about getting time under tension for this tissue. So if it feels good, which, you know, we kind of show them it feels good and like it, and then they have that control over how many they can do. Um, and when there's like, ah, I should hold off on today. Uh, I don't know. Those are, those are, those are a couple little tidbits. Yeah. I like that. It kind of touches on, I think what the central theme of patient care or patient centered care should be is what can your patient tolerate psychologically? There's a component there. Physiologically, we know our healing timelines for things roughly. Someone has a grade one, two, three tendon strain or uh, an acute muscle tear, 
things like that. I think we need to understand first our physiology. How long does it take the tissue to heal? Really basic principles that if I overload my patient and I say, oh, my patient says this feels easy, and then the next day they feel like they got hit by a bus, we clearly did too much. So I think it is always safe to start at these kind of subjective patient reported, yeah, this I can tolerate this combined with the physiology. So if your patient is feeling, I usually use the rating of perceived exertion. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's something that a lot of clinicians use. And if you don't, I mean, it's a really easy tool. It is evidence-based. Mm -hmm. It is uh, a tool that your patient can understand. They have this, this rating six through, I think 20. And where are they? If you don't have a RPE scale, you can always say easy, medium, hard. I mean, yeah. those are fairly yeah. simple guidelines and parameters that give your patients the peace of mind that, okay, I'm in an area that's safe. And then usually the next day, if their pain is overwhelming, that they can't do what they need to do, or it's limiting them, they did too much. If they didn't do very much, then we need to hit the drawing board on, okay, what type of movement are we doing? Is it too soon? Um, because we don't want to basically undo all the healing that the patient's body has done for them. So I, I don't think that the three sets of 10 <laughs> is something that should just go in the garbage because if a patient really likes it or if they are handling it well, they have some mild soreness or soreness that doesn't inhibit activity after one to two hours of starting activity and then it doesn't last throughout the day, I think that's a pretty decent number and they feel good with the roundness of a 10. Like, I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. But I do think, you know, you hit on something as well in the strength and conditioning world, the ACSM guidelines have been around. Again, they don't really have any backing or any basis for why these are kind of the set numbers, but what we've seen is strength gains happen when you have higher load, lower reps, more endurance, which is a usually good place to start with injury with Therax is higher reps, lower weight, and just seeing what your patient can tolerate. Power, fewer reps, really high load as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. So there's just some really basic tenets, I think, of strength and conditioning that can be applied as well. Yeah, I mean, this is what you used to teach when you taught yeah. students in PT school, right? So um, those are the those are the principles that you're going to be hearing from your patients that are told from their trainers, right? Uh, and so keeping with that same for vocabulary, I think is helpful for the patients, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and and the other thing I try to do too is I try not to um, I try to give them a goal, but I also don't want to give them so much of a goal where they just don't even start, right? Because like, oh, I'm never gonna get in, you know? Because I usually say, I want you to get in 40, 50 reps in total of this movement, right? And I don't care if those are sets of 10, if they're sets of 20, or if they're sets of three, right? Yeah. We, we try and make sure the education is good that I want you to feel it here. And when you start to not feel it here, meaning compensation somehow, then I want you to stop, right? And it's fine if it's after three reps. It's totally yeah. fine, right? That's where you are, but I still want you to try to get those 40 or 50 reps in. And if you can, great. If you can't, build up to it. Uh, and that that hopefully, you know, including with the rule of 10 and all that sort of stuff, hopefully that gives them enough of that license to say, 
oh, I feel really good today. I'm going to do these and then check in the next day, like you're saying. And, you know, it's funny is those also still come a lot from the tendon guidelines as well, right? It's like, yeah. what are your three timelines to check, right? During, immediately following, and 24 hours after, you know, the, the activity. Yeah, those are great follow-up timelines. I want to share a little bit of story. This is kind of my own mailbag. Um, I... <laughs> I made someone throw up in PT once and <laughs> it was so, it, I felt horrible. The gentleman in question came into the clinic and I could tell maybe he hasn't been the most active and he came in with some knee pain and you know, very sedentary job and, but came in and our gym space was very like healthy, active, like we had turf and weights and I think part of him felt ashamed that he wasn't more active but said he was more active than what I think he was and so I didn't start him with anything very difficult when we were testing kind of just some basic motions of you know walking step up squats just things like that we did some reps of goblet squats or maybe that was just regular squats with a weight in front to kind of mimic everyday stuff. He did about a set of 10 of those. And then I had him do some step ups to see how his knee felt going up and downstairs. So after doing, honestly, it was probably a round of 10 squats and then another round of maybe 10 step ups each leg, just kind of seeing how the fatigue impacted his pain. He said, I need a minute. He walked to the restroom and threw up and I felt so bad. Part of it was honestly, he overestimated to me what he was doing currently for his physical activity. But as a clinician, it was very humbling for me to know just getting someone more reps and more load and more activity and more, more, more and make their body resilient. I'm, you know, my bias is usually to load people and make their body resilient, but super humbling because this person didn't do very much and still felt pretty terrible. So that was a lesson to me of take it slow. Some of these folks haven't really done much physical activity for a while. And sometimes finding their RPE of 16, 17 is too much. And sometimes you need to work them into that kind of moderate, maybe a little bit hard, but moderate area to find a good baseline. So that's a great story. I, I have I have follow-up questions on that, but I, I want to actually get back to the um, the RPE thing, right? So you mentioned, you know, the the zero through twenty. Um, six through twenty. Sorry, six through twenty. Talk talk to me about say zero to ten, right? Or like the you know the two different the most common scales, if yeah. you will, right? And and you know what the research says about so that. So the the RPE is supposed to align somewhat with heart rate. So if light is about sixty beats per minute, you take that six at the bottom and multiply it by ten. And then it goes to 20, which is like supposed to be equivalent to like 200. That's like max, max, like failure. If you're between, I think the 150 or 170, that's hard. So you're really actually working to a decent level. And then kind of in between there, I think from like, I don't know, seven to 15, it goes from like light, very light, light to moderate to then heavy or hard. So I think you can use a zero to 10 scale. I think you can use a zero to five scale. I don't, I don't know that it really matters so much, but having something to measure your patient's subjective response in an objective way gives you, I think a little bit more to go off of than just saying, how are you feeling? 
sure. good, tired, this is difficult. Like I think having a number to quantify really helps your patients to keep it objective and stay out of the, I'm gonna die and I hate this and, or mm -hmm. I feel good. Like there's not much to quantify from that. So I think as long as you have some type of number, I think it's helpful. Well, I think, th thanks for explaining that out because it, it's coming from 10 years of personal training and strength and conditioning and whatnot, right? Like I think that's something that is valuable going into the knowledge of being a physical therapist, right? Um, the that ability to quantify it for your patients and for them to experience that quantification mm -hmm. internally uh, is a really, really important skill and tool that I, I don't know if, I, well, no, actually I know PTs do not get going through physical therapy school, right? right? If you don't go into PT school with a strength and conditioning background, you leave without a strength and conditioning background. So, yeah. um, unless for, you take my Therix class. Well, but I think if that's that's a, this is a good opportunity for us to sort of leave people with a good um, a, a good tool. Yeah. Right for for themselves. So, um, thanks for explaining that because if if we do so, say that one more time. Just how it matches up with heart rate yeah. and how it, it you know you could use that in the clinic. Yeah. So the RPE scale. Just look it up. There's PDFs of it online. It's a six through twenty scale, which seems random but it's supposed to align with the heart rate. So I think if you have an Apple Watch or if your patient has something that can objectify their vitals, you can also use that, like they do that with VO2 max testing and the patient can't really talk and tell you a number, they kind of give you an up, a down, sometimes they'll point to a number if you have it handy, but using vitals is obviously an easy way to go, but this you can put in front of a patient and they can pick a number and say they're, at their max 17 or above, then you can you know stop whatever exercise it is. But if they're in the light to, very light to light, or if they're in the moderate, you might be able to get a little bit more out of them. So I think that's a really great way to judge dosage. That response aside, I also think your patient's realistic, uh, effort that they're going to put into their home exercises is also valuable because if your patient's not going to do the work they're going to come back and you're going to shame them for you should be doing your exercises because i'm doing my job and if you're not getting better it's your fault that is a horrible thing to do to our patients and that's what they feel in medicine all the time is if they don't go in, they're going to be judged. You go to the dentist, you brush your teeth right before the dentist, you floss right before the <laughs> dentist. You don't want to be judged by these people that it's their job to help make you better. Mm -hmm. So if you're not seeking ways to help make them better, I think you're doing a disservice to your patient as well. Mm -hmm. So if they can only do five sit-to-stands, which I've had patients that can only do that, oh, yeah. it, it can be really demoralizing to tell them, oh, out of your age range, you're only performing at this. Some people it really does motivate. Sometimes it is really nice to show them, you know, I'd really love to be able to get you up to this seven to 10 rep range of sit to stands. Do you think that's realistic for you to do? Or do you think this five sit to stands right now you could do every day? And if they say, yeah, the likelihood that I'm gonna do that is a five out of 10 or less. Okay, what can I do to raise that to a seven out of 10 confidence that you can do it? Yeah maybe make it every other day. Okay, so this is like a, it should be a dynamic conversation to get to a dosage that your patient can, letter A, handle, yeah. and letter B, will do. Because yeah. if they don't do it, they're not gonna see any progress, then they're gonna be upset, and then 
they're going to come to you and you're going to say, well, if you don't do this, you're not going to do that. And <laughs> it's just a spiral. So yeah. I think you obviously have to manage patient to patient, but I think there are a lot of factors in finding a good dosage and um, meeting your patient where they are. Yeah, I think that's exactly the good summary, right? Is sometimes you have to throw research out the window. Maybe you bring it up as an education piece, but sometimes you just throw it out the window and you meet them where they're at. And Which is evidence-based. Well, okay, yes. So it's not that you're wrong. It's just that that's exactly a touch point is people think evidence is only hard numbers, hard facts, hard objective stuff, but there is a lot of patient-centered data out there that says if you meet your patient where they are, they're going to be more likely to be successful than if you use shame, fear as motivators. Sure. So I think there's other data that we have to look at rather than just objective numbers. You need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, yeah. but there's a human on the other side of you need to do. <laughs> so you're spot on with that. Great. Didn't mean to interrupt your thought, but go ahead. No, I think I think we I think we've got we've got enough of this one. I think the you know more questions or not reach out to us, but yeah. I think uh, hopefully that that gives people some good tools to to try out with with patients and you know or reinforce what they're already doing and or maybe think critically about what they're doing. Totally. So. so definitely hit us up if you have something to add in the comments, if you have experience with any of the stories or any of the comments in this episode, hit us in the DMs, hit us in the comments, and uh, we look forward to hearing you on our next mailbag, yeah. which our next topic we have is what types of things do you do to get buy-in from your patients that doesn't involve an outdated or less effective modality? So. What types of things do you do to get buy-in? Maybe outside of you know the ultrasound, the e-stim, maybe therapeutic massage if that's something you use a lot. Um, how do you get buy-in from your patients? How do you get them to keep coming back? We'd love to hear from you on the next one. And until then, keep moving. You've been listening to the Force Matters Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and really want to hear from you. Visit us at our website at motusi.com. Our new Instagram handle is at Force Matters Podcast. DM us there, participate in our Force Matters mailbag segments, and just keep following along. Until our next one, keep moving. <laughs>